Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And today, we're going to be talking about Article 10 in the Church of the Nazarene. Now, we've talked about the Articles of Faith before, but Article 10 is that article on entire sanctification and Christian holiness. And today, we have a very exciting guest with us, but we'll go ahead and introduce ourselves. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and as normal, we have with us... Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And also, we have a special guest who is... Dan Spross. All righty. Well, today we're going to be talking about Article 10. And I love that Article 10, it has the, the dramatic stage presence to come in and say, I am Article X. It is the big one. And this is something which actually is very important to our heritage from the holiness movement. It's obviously one which is a very big deal. I know when I was going through the process of being a district license minister going towards ordination, I remember just about all my mentors, they would always come and sit down with me and say, now when you go in for those interviews, make sure you understand entire sanctification. That always seemed to be the article which got people really worked up, and it seems to be the one that has the most debate. So today we're going to be talking about entire sanctification and the doctrine of Christian perfection. And we're going to be having some questions like, has the church moved away from holiness? Has it moved away from our theology of holiness? Has the emphasis of holiness overshadowed the reality of things like backsliding and sin? As Wesleyans following the traditions of the holiness movement, we are at a place where we really need to understand this doctrine and how it relates to our modern churches and how we apply that in the world around us. So today we're going to talk with Brother Dan. He's going to answer some questions. But before we go any further, let's actually read the article so that we have a good understanding of what we're talking about. So, Pastor Amanda, if you would. Yes, so this is a reading um, of Article 10, Christian Holiness and Entire Sanctification. We believe that sanctification is the work of God, which transforms believers into the likeness of Christ. It is wrought by God's grace through the Holy Spirit in initial sanctification or regeneration, simultaneous with justification, entire sanctification, and the continued perfecting work of the Holy Spirit culminating in glorification. In glorification, we are fully conformed to the image of the Son. We believe that entire sanctification is the act of God subsequent to regeneration by which believers are made free from original sin or depravity and brought into a state of entire devotion to God and the holy obedience of love made perfect. It is wrought by the baptism with or infilling of the Holy Spirit and comprehends in one experience the cleansing of the heart from sin and the abiding indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the believer for life and service. Entire sanctification is provided by the blood of Jesus, is wrought instantaneously by grace through faith, preceded by entire consecration, and to this work and state of grace the Holy Spirit bears witness. This experience is also known by various terms representing its different phases, such as Christian perfection, perfect love, heart unity, the baptism with or infilling of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the blessing, and Christian holiness. We believe that there is a marked distinction between a pure heart and a mature character. The former is obtained in an instant, the result of entire sanctification, and the latter is the result of growth in grace. We believe that the grace of entire sanctification includes the divine impulse to grow in grace as a Christ-like disciple. However, this impulse must be consciously nurtured and careful attention given to the requisites and processes of spiritual development and improvement in Christ-likeness of character and personality. Without such purposeful endeavor, one's witness may be impaired and the grace itself frustrated and ultimately lost. Participating in the means of grace, especially the fellowship, disciplines, and sacraments of the church, believers grow in grace and in wholehearted love to God and neighbor. All right. 
Now we've heard the article, and this is as it appears in the current Nazarene manual. I'm going to throw this over to Brother Dan. Brother Dan, would you talk to us a little bit about the, the history of this article, how it's changed throughout the years, and why this really is so important to us as members of the Church of the Nazarene? Well, first of all, the Church of the Nazarene is a part of the historic American holiness movement in the 19th century when it was first formed, has always put a, a particular emphasis on the continuing work of grace that God can do in one's heart beyond regeneration, justification, being born again. And that experience came to be known as sanctification, more properly, entire sanctification. The problem with using terminology, and an entire sanctification is biblical. First um, Thessalonians 5.23, Paul's prayer is that their hearts would be sanctified, holotales, which is holy and entirely and completely. That's where the, the language of entire sanctification comes from. And part of that language has always been a part of the, the history of the Church of the Nazarene. Now, when you use terms like entire, um, it seems to suggest that's it. That's all of it. Regrettably, in the experience of many people, they believe that if you submitted to the work of Christ in the second definite work of grace, that was it. God was finished with you, and there was nothing else for God to do with you or for you until you died, at which point you would then be glorified and do resurrection body and Christ likeness. The stress was, can we not only begin sanctification in the new life in Christ, but can we also reach a place in life where God's sanctifying work can be considered entire? Um, Wesley's term for this work of grace was Christian perfection. And again, the word perfection suggests, oh, so there's nothing left to do. Better understanding would be what many of the early Greek church fathers would have suggested. Yes, we are perfected in Christ who goes on perfecting us. Meaning not that it's the absolute perfection, but we have completely or entirely submitted the heart to the love of Christ, which becomes then our ordering principle. For about the first 80 years in the Church of the Nazarene, the article proceeded without a great deal of change. The Articles of Faith did have biblical scriptures attached at the completion, such as the current manual has, back in the 1970s. But in the earliest statements of faith, I have the uh, photocopy of the 1908 manual, which was the first official manual of the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, there were no scriptures attached at the end. And it begins with a theological description and then begins and ends up with talking about the grace itself as an experience suggesting it can be frustrated and lost. About 15 or 20 years ago, a commission decided there needed to be some clarification. Early debates back in the 80s and 90s of the 1900s, there was discussion as to whether or not sanctification was a one-time, once it's done, it's finished action, or whether it also included an ongoing dynamic process. And like many of those kinds of debates, the proper answer is yes to both. It is work God accomplishes, but it is an ongoing work 
that God continues to accomplish by his grace through Jesus Christ. So the more recent article, the one that Amanda read for us, begins with an explanation. The very first paragraph there was added um, about 10 years ago to talk about how this fits within the broader scheme of salvation as a whole beginning with justification and then regeneration, initial sanctification, entire sanctification, with also, I think, a good caveat, but entire sanctification was never intended to be equated with glorification. And there are those that misunderstood language like Christian perfection or entire sanctification as though somehow that implied there is nothing further that God can do for us because the work is completely finished. So the language has continued to expand and they also wanted to make it clear by the end that where they added more about the encourage the impulse to continue to grow in grace because the development of Christian character does not happen in any instant or through any single experience. It takes living life submitted to and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ for that to be accomplished. So it's both a work that God has accomplished and does accomplish, but it's an ongoing work that by his grace he continues to do. And so some of the discussion in recent years has been, so does the contemporary article take away from what the original said? The truth is in looking at the 1908 manual statement, it has been completely incorporated in the contemporary statement with um, some additions at the beginning and at the end that talk about how then should that be lived out and how then does that relate to the other theological understandings we have of salvation. And you have with us today, you actually have the a copy of the 1908 manual, and you've got it where you can hold it up for people, but you have the newer manual as well, which is much larger <laughs> there for comparison. Yes, um, quite a bit. But as far as the, when you actually look at the doctrine of entire sanctification, to your point earlier, you were saying much of the original article has been retained. In fact, I think you would be hard pressed to find more than a half a dozen words from the original that are not fully contained in the contemporary article. There's a preface to it. There is a little bit of clarification. I think the language of inbred sin, which was 1908, has been replaced with original sin or depravity. Um, we don't speak as often these days about inbred sin, but it refers to the same theological understanding. But beyond that, all the rest of the language of this article from 1908 reappears completely yeah. and there's nothing in the contemporary article that would undo or alter what's stated here. It just goes beyond right. with some of the implications of that. It's it's building off of the foundation. It's not doing anything which is, is in any sort of confrontation with it. No, not um, at all. Pastor Amanda, I know when we had talked about this before and you, you had talked about the emphasis on almost needing to define the word finished. A lot of people talk about, well, where does sanctification and, and things being finished? Would you elaborate on that while we've got Dan here? Yeah. Um, well, I had just, uh, Dr. Sprouse was talking about, um, yeah, this idea of it being absolute and complete or, and, and then I think he already touched on it really when he was talking about the, the difference in the historical background behind the sanct uh, this article of entire sanctification. 
Um, and maybe even some comparisons with other people. Because the thing is, all churches, all denominations, if they're a Christian, believe in sanctification. We just That's right. have different emphasis on it or explain it differently. And so some would say that sanctification only happens in glorification because that is the complete, the final, the definite um, kind of work. And even using that language, we talk about that when we say entire sanctification. But when we say a second definite work of grace or the complete or the entire sanctification of God, we're, we're really defining those words slightly differently than, say, um, some of our more Calvin or Reformed brothers and sisters um, because we're using it as, as Dr. Sprost explained earlier, that there, it is complete and yet it is still being completed. It is perfect and being perfected at the same time. Um, versus, again, some of our, our, our other brothers and sisters would say, no, it can only happen uh, when, you're, when you're dead and, and therefore then re receive the bodily resurrection. And if I may add, uh, both Calvinism and Lutheranism would contend that one is not entirely sanctified until death, mm. and that death somehow is the entire sanctification moment, um, which is interesting in light of the way Paul sees death as the last enemy to be defeated. Mm. Why that would suddenly becomes the vehicle of grace um, strikes me a little bit strange. That is strange. And while we get to some other things that are strange, let's get to the more saucy, contentious side of this conversation. Because what we're going to do for the rest of this program is normally when we are producing a, a podcast, we're putting an episode together, there are a lot of things that have been either directly coming up in conversations in our churches internally, or there's something which happens in conversations. But what we have for the remainder of this are propositions that have been given to me from other people who are clergy in the Church of the Nazarene that really is in my conversations and discussions about their thoughts on things, they have said these are, are points that we would like someone to, to answer in regards to how the church deals with this particular article. And so we're going to go through a, several questions and we're going to have Dan and, and Amanda respond to them. And I, I just want us to, to realize these are from other clergy about how we teach doctrine. So these are not any one person's questions. They come from a variety of sources, and hopefully this will have some meaningful conversation for everyone listening. All right, so the first question that we have is, what do we need to do to ensure that lay people have a good understanding? What is a good understanding of sanctification for a lay person? Now, when we were getting prepared for the show today, Dan had brought up this idea a little bit that in Jewish tradition, there is this reminder that God is holy and his people should be holy. They too are called to be holy, but yet we're born into sin. There is this idea of original sin. Humanity has fallen and God needs to do something about the carnal nature. God needs to do something to make us holy. There needs to be something going on. So brother Dan, what are your thoughts on making sure that lay people have a good understanding of this? And do we need to do something? I know there's been different talks about having a version of the manual that uses alternative language. Um, debatably simpler. What are your thoughts on all that, Dan? Well, first of all, when when I start with an elementary understanding of holiness and sanctification, I go back to the Old Testament notion of the holy is that which is other, that which is completely and entirely devoted to and committed to God. The understanding in the whole Old Testament, and it carries into the New, is that God is distinctly other, unique, different than. Holiness isn't one of God's attributes. It's a part of his essential nature. He is holy by nature. 
we human beings created in his image because of the fall do not immediately and automatically bear that image wholly, fully, and completely without it having been affected and infected by the reality of human sin. Now, in the Wesleyan tradition, we do understand that part of God's sanctifying work is renewing and restoring his image within us, the one that he had intended when he created humanity from the beginning. However, ours is always derivative. We have no holiness except in relationship to God. In the Old Testament, an object, time, space could all be declared holy because these are set apart for and committed to God. A holy building was set apart from use for anyone else or anything else other than the holy God. You started with very profane material. What made it holy was the presence of God. And the language in Article 10 on consecration means it is committing it. It is setting it aside. It is offering it to God for God's use and for God's service. That's what makes it holy. It's not intrinsically holy. I think the holiness movement got into trouble when sometimes folks thought because of an experience of, of grace, a marvelous experience of grace, they somehow assumed then they now had an inherent holiness. And it's not inherent. It is simply, it is a closer relationship with the holy other God. Something came to my mind when you said that. Do you see any modern form of people think, I have had some sort of experience, therefore I am inherently holy? Do you see any, any form of that taking place in the, the modern world? I know a lot of things, There's some may say there's nothing new other than the sun. There's just a, a new setting for things to take place. But do you think that is something which still exists in the world, or is that kind of contained to those moments during the peak of the holiness movement? Well, I don't think it was just in the peak of the holiness movement, and that's where I think it's important that the language be precise and it be clear. When a you know, if a person advertised, if your if your license plate would said, "Follow me, I'm perfect," um, there'd be a lot of folks that would take issue with that. Even if your car's in the parking lot, uh, wouldn't have to do just necessarily the way you drive. And um, the perfection of Christian perfection is a completeness. It's reaching the intended purpose for which you were created. And I think human beings were created in the image of God to reflect the holiness of their creator. So as we cooperate with what God's grace makes possible, we can reflect it. Other traditions are much more comfortable with language like Christ-likeness or Christian discipleship, which are often synonyms for what can be referred to as those who are sanctified, who are mm. set apart, who are consecrated and committed to Jesus Christ as Lord. Pastor Amanda, do you have any thoughts on anything? Well, I was thinking about kind of the second part of your question about, um, you had mentioned there may be conversation of rewriting the manual or having a duplicate one that that's a, in slightly a different language. Um, and I think this is kind of interesting because I, I reflect on, my mom is, a, is an ordained elder in the Church of Nazarene. She's a children's pastor. Right now she's in transition, but where she was ministering uh, earlier um, is was at a preschool. And I mean, when I say preschool, I mean like two to five-year-olds. 
And she can explain entire sanctification to two to five-year-olds. Now, obviously, they're still developing abstract thought, and so there's some interesting things that happen in in that teaching. Um, But if she can teach that to two to five-year-olds, surely any of us can can teach that to to any age group. And I think it's fascinating because you had mentioned earlier simpler language, and and I think there's a time to use very, very, um, I guess colloquial might be the right word, some very modern language, and that's okay. And we should always be thinking about how best to explain what what our ideas and our theology, and we should never act like, well, I use the special words, therefore, you know, I'm more important, or I understand the, the special words. But at the same time, Again, we meet people where we are and we take them to a better place, not because we have anything intrinsically, but because as we participate in the life of God, with the life of God, we are, as we are being blessed, we are called to bless others. As we are being perfected, we are called to help others in their walk in perfection. And and so we have to teach. That's really the job of the pastor is to pastor, is to lead, to guide, to feed, to tend to the sheep. Um, and and I basically, basically what I'm saying is, so should there be kind of how do we help lay people understand entire sanctification, which really just the word sometimes scares people, is we don't shy away from the word. We use it and it's so, and we use it maybe in such different ways and in such ways that inspire people to dig deeper and not to to shy away from it. I will say this. I have had college kids, when they come out to Jolton for stuff, a lot of them probably think I'm like the meanest bully ever <laughs> and who meet me in person. I've had some of them get like really mad at me for like using words, which really aren't terribly large words, but they're like, you know, like people can't understand that and like get really upset that the church would use stuff, even when you're, you're quoting directly for something or just trying to, to be precise in language. But we, it seems to me, and the point of all this is that when the language starts getting watered down without aspiring towards something better, that seems to be a one-way street to me. I could be wrong, but things tend to, to go the track of devolving more than it's ever, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be as great of a tool as it could potentially be. It really turns more into a bad thing. And at that point, theological language in the Articles of Faith is designed to designed to give clarity and precision. Yeah. And if some of the terminology we use needs amplification, I think Amanda was right, part of our task and responsibility is to explain it with clarity, but we don't abandon the right. language. Well, I was just going to also add to it. I mean, you even have this in the early church where Paul writes about, you know, spiritual milk, but also moving to meat. Um, and this is something for all of us, not just new believers and not just believers who, who have been in the church for their entire lives. Is we always should be aspiring yeah. to grow and to learn and to dive deeper. And at any time in our Christian walk, we feel like, you know, maybe I have been lacking, maybe not like a full on backslide, but, you know, we're we're not quite aspiring towards that transformation, then we need to do that. And and that's why we have community. That's why we have church is to hold us accountable, but also to encourage and and provide that structure towards that movement. And now's a good time for a shameless plug to say, (laughs) be reminded by us here at Kingdom Law of God to support your local church. We like to throw those plugs out there, but this is not to replace church, but it is to be supplemental in your Christian walk. And we've got to get on with all these questions. We've only done one. Um, so the second question that we we have here uh, is how did Article 10 become the one holding so much weight? I know Dan has already talked about that it's rarely changed, but a lot of people, they they come to the Articles of Faith and they, they see some of them which are pretty clear. You look at the first few addressing uh, the, the Trinity, you see things addressing scripture and sin. There are questions that will come up, but 
with those, it seems that there's not a lot of contention. But when it comes to Article 10, and I know even when I was at General Assembly, there was so much hesitation. It, and earlier I used the illustration of it's like a, a swimming pool filled with snakes and somebody wanted to, to tiptoe across that um, without being eaten alive in order to even discuss it when they were um, talking with people about changing Article 10 at all. Brother Dan, how is it that this has become what seems like the article of articles? It seems to be the one which is so important. Well, having served for many decades on a board of ministerial credentials, one of the reasons that those who would aspire to be ministers particularly are told, you need to be familiar with it and you need to be able to explain this. For many folks, the theological identity of the Church of the Nazarene as a holiness denomination rests upon are you comfortable with the language and are you comfortable with what is being affirmed here if you'll be consistent with the theological heritage. The things that people care deeply about usually become those issues that can become most contentious. I have a friend from a tradition that once had a very high view of sanctification who consoled me back 15 years ago when the debate was whether or not we should change this article. He said, you need to thank God that the Church of the Nazarene still cares about sanctification enough for people to get upset about it. They at least want to make sure it matters. Yeah. He said, in my tradition, people tend to just gloss it over and they don't even think about it. Um, they hardly even worry about it. And it's ironic if you know his tradition, which well, I do. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's a really healthy way of actually coming to this. You know, here we've been talking a lot about Cain and Abel and which side of you needs to handle things. When it comes to the contention of Article 10, a good side of, of one's mind is to say, at least we're proud that people care enough about this to, to make it a big deal. That's, that's a really good side of that. Um, moving on to the next point. Has the doctrine of entire sanctification become a Gnostic litmus test to see if someone can conjure the right words to show that they are part of the elect? And this really is the question of when, and again, these are from other or clergy, this idea that when ministers are going in and even people that are prospective ministers, say you're, you're looking to get your first district license, maybe you're moving towards ordination, this idea that if you can have the right verbal incantation, then you are kind of part of a separate group that is now elect. Now, traditionally, when I use the word Gnostic and how I've understood this to mean, it's sort of something which is a bit arbitrary. It's immutable whether you're part of the elect or not. There's not really anything you can do. Um, Brother Dan probably knows a lot more about this, but I'm not familiar with many Gnostic things where if you have the right incantation, you become with it. But I think the, the general sentiment of this question is there is an elect group and the entire sanctification question that one might be posed with, however it may be phrased, your understanding of it becomes the, the test of, are you part of the elect or not? Can you utter the correct incantation? Dan, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, first of all, most Nazarenes don't spend a lot of time worrying about elect. Um, <laughs> you're either in or you're not, and you're either in agreement or you're not. Um, Gnosticism had a tendency to separate what you knew intellectually yeah. from how you lived. In real Gnosticism, very unlike our Nazarene forebears, would say, well, as long as you know the right words, it doesn't matter how you live. Yeah. It doesn't matter how your behavior changes. And frankly, the way I understand the holiness movement, 
it was very non-gnostic in the sense that the assumption was if you allow Jesus Christ to truly be Lord of your life, it will make a difference in the way you behave. And there were some who believed you could tell by behavior what people really believe. Now, I think that can take you into some very dangerous water. But the reality is, I don't think it was that. I do think there was a period, particularly during the 80s and 90s, when there was a strong debate as to whether this is a crisis momentary event that when once over works over and you're done, which was many times, unfortunately, the misunderstanding of if you have this marvelous experience of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, that he will then finish the work in you and all you do now is sit back in your pew and wait till Jesus comes. Um, there were folks who lived like that. And for them, saved, sanctified, I often thought should have been, you added the line, and petrified. I mean, you know, <laughs> here we are, we're just waiting to die or Jesus comes back. And um, that was a problem for folks. So there was a push toward getting this definitive, can you point to a moment? Can you tell us about that time? Can yeah. you describe the event? There were others who argued, yes, there are definitive moments where God's grace has accomplished great things, but that then in turn sets us up for the ongoing process, mm. the sanctifying that follows from sanctification. And um, so I think there were those for a period, and there were times that on a board of credentials, if you didn't say the right language about your sanctification experience, you might be turned down from licensure or for ordination until there was further study and further clarification. So there were people, I, 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 I'm confident, there were some who were coached, make sure you use these words this way and have this to where you can nail that down and that will satisfy the committee or the board. Um, I don't think in the contemporary climate that's nearly the case um, that it once was. I don't think the issue is now a matter of this is how you demonstrate you're on the inside or the outside. Well, one thing I want to say too, and from my understanding of most Gnostic sects back to that which have happened, it seems that the power of the elect is somehow coupled to some sort of judicial power where they can decide who is not only in and out, but also who is condemned and who is not. It seems like something where there is an, an element of, of power play that happens with the, the elect. But to, to your point of, of people on the credentials board being brought in such a way, do you ever think that there is, and I realize that people have different levels of, say, verbal cognitive ability where they can articulate things well or maybe they can't. Is there sometimes a, a gap between the sentiment people may understand of sanctification? And again, I'm not speaking so much of an experiential sentiment, but just the the understanding that I need to be holy and God must do something to make me holy and their ability to articulate that. And for people who are new and upcoming ministers who have a difficulty articulating something which they're generally moving towards, what sort of encouraging phrasing might you have for that? Well, if I understand the question you're asking me, I think that for those who are not comfortable with the nomenclature, they need to 
to be certain they understand the extent theologically of what God's salvation, and that's a very broad term that would encompass um, regeneration. It would encompass what is called initial sanctification, entire sanctification, growth in grace, development. They need to have a clear understanding of how you explain that and understand what God's at work doing and accomplishing. And as Amanda said, um, we, we ask the same questions whether someone is working primarily with children, youth, or adults. Yeah. And again, yeah, I'm saying that gap between the nomenclature and then kind of where they're actually at intellectually. And many times we want to, to kind of vilify the nomenclature and say, well, the nomenclature is bad. If you can't accurately utilize this, this selection of diction or something like that, a lot of times our modern culture, at least what I see with my generation is to say, well, oh, well then the nomenclature must be bad. We must lower the level. And I don't think that's the correct answer. And it, I understand you correctly, Dan, you as well, don't think that that would be the the goal of ministerial studies as a part of preparation requires that you develop a facility with nomenclature and that you know it well enough that you can explain it and articulate it to an audience. All righty. And let's go on to our next question. So the next one that was asked was, have we evolved beyond the two works of grace? And this, the mentality of a first, second work of grace to an understanding where there is a single work of grace with multifacets, that there is a single work of Christ on the cross. Brother Dan, I'll just let you respond to that. Well, I think the foundation of our salvation from beginning to end comes in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the basis for our justification. That is the basis for the forgiveness of sin. That is the basis for the the recreation and transformation into Christ-likeness. I think that's also the basis for any subsequent work that the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the believer. The Spirit does not work in the Spirit's name alone. The Spirit's work is to bear witness to what God has accomplished in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, the language of two works of grace, regrettably, I think, wormed its way into the theological understanding primarily based upon the fact that in most people's lives there were two distinct moments in their walk with Christ in which the appropriation of grace seemed to take them from the initiation into the faith to a more mature development and understanding of having been forgiven of my sin. How now shall I live as a wholehearted disciple of Jesus Christ. For many, that was a clear, distinctive, secondary moment. Now, my own understanding is God is not limited in the numbers of works of grace he can accomplish in the lives of believers. And that's a very, very good point to make. And and I want to just take a pause to emphasize that. Brother Dan is saying God is not limited in the number of, of works that, that God can do in someone's life. And that actually is a point which brings us to one of our, our later questions that we're going to come to when we get to the issue of backsliding and confession. But um, back to that, I'll see if Brother Dan, you had anything else. I just wanted to put a little pin on that saying we need to emphasize that. Yes, and, and I guess for me, when I was attending a Mennonite seminary, I had a very holy, godly professor who when he decided in his late adolescence he was 
going to get serious about walking with Jesus Christ, he knew, I need to go repent of my sins. I need to be baptized. I need to join the church. I need to live for Jesus Christ in unbroken fellowship moving forward. His testimony was, from that day forward, I have enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. For him to talk about the need of a second work of grace would have been absurd. He had begun the process and the journey of walking with God, and he had enough understanding of what that would include that he was completely consecrated to him and in the act and in his work and in his walk. He was a holy, godly man. And you don't have to have the nomenclature to become a holy person. And we thank God for that. Yes, indeed we do. Well, moving along with these questions, let's get to this next one. Where does glorification fit in relation to sanctification? The article hints at glorification, but does not give clear guidance on where we should teach glorification. Now, I'm not fully certain of the entire context of this question, but just as I look at it, something comes to my mind about there is this idea that people become sanctified and petrified in their their placement on heaven and how they emphasize the role of that. It is something which which needs a lot of clarification. I know even with the the younger generations, there's kind of a, a interesting movement of the pendulum where it looks like in the past there was a heavy talk on being in heaven and, and being in the glory there with God, but then it kind of swung and where people are almost to the point where it doesn't even matter to me if heaven is real or not. And there does seem to be confusion with, with myself and with the generations around me. I look around and people aren't sure how to emphasize something like that. But again, the question itself is just directed at where does glorification fit in relation to sanctification. So brother Dan, I'll let you respond to that. However you see fit. Oh, I think the classical understanding of glorification is very much parallel to what Paul refers to when he talks about in death we will be resurrected and our bodies, and Paul believed in a bodily resurrection from the dead, the dead in Christ shall rise. And in that rising with a resurrection body, that body will be glorified. It will be freed from the, the limitations and the realities of the time-space creatures that we are in the here and the now. I think there were some who, because of the kinds of professions they would make for what happened when they, quote, got sanctified, made it sound like they were so perfectly ready and fit for heaven that God would have nothing further to do than to just take them straight into eternal life without the death of this body and the resurrection from the dead that was promised. Now, at that point, there was some fuzzy theology, and many times folk theology can lead to some bad understandings. Sanctification is the ongoing process that prepares us, I think, for glorification. And I look forward to a resurrection body. Brother Dan, can you give us a, a good definition of glorification? It, it's not one of the, the clearly outlined things that is always apparent to people, but could you just for the sake of the audience give us a, a definition of glorification? Well, the glorification, I think, theologically in line with justification, sanctification, glorification, 
Glorification is the ultimate, I think, preparation for eternal life. And so, the work that God began in justifying humanity, in bringing humanity back to God's self, in sanctifying, in reviving and renewing the image of God that had originally been intended when human beings were created with a purpose, was for the ultimate glorification of humanity to live in an eternal right relationship with God and with others that he has redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ. When I hear that language of, of being in a right relationship, again, when you're talking preparation for an eternal life, I don't think you're meaning something like you you got your bag packed exactly like you want it to. I think there is an emphasis that you, you pointed to there towards in your statement about a relationship with God where you are now able to be in the presence of God. When you look at some of the, the definitions, if you go back and you study the word glory itself and the, the notion of to glorify something, there's this idea of revealing this divine presence and really glorification, this notion that says there's a resurrection. Um, and again, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but now you, you are ready for that eternal relationship with God where there's not the, the separation that, that often we think of here on earth. Pastor Amanda. Well, I think, you know, we talk about the end, we have to go back to the beginning, right? So if we're talking about renewal and, and reviving, then what is being renewed? What is being revived? That image of God. And, and I think if we look to, to the Genesis account, we see this, this lovely picture of God walking with humanity, right? There's a relationship, a perfect, there's nothing but the wholeness and the perfectness of God and God's relationship with, with all of creation. And so that is then what the, what the end goal is is uh, in mind or has in mind is that there will be that renewal. And I think even in glorification, uh, we can say that there is a process. And I don't know, I might just have gotten um, uh, excommunicated there. But no, but what I mean by that is saying is even in glorification, even in eternity, we continue that relationship with God where we continually learn about who God is and we're continually growing with God in knowing uh, how God acts and loves even in when heaven comes and there's nothing but the kingdom of God. And so we see that now while we're on earth, just as we're called to participate in the kingdom, we can get a glimpse of that glorification, not that it has come in its fullness, but as we are being saved and sanctified, we act as if it has come in its fullness. We act as if we are living fully and completely in the kingdom of God, because that's who we're called to be. Um, so I just, I don't know, that that's, that's just, the fun thing about our theology is we don't have to wait, right? We right. don't have to just sit back. And if we do sit back, then, then we've missed really the emphasis of our theology. Really, we've completely negated the power of our theology. Um, it is saying you don't have to wait for heaven one day, someday. You can start living into that heavenly um, experience now. And so I just, that's the beauty, I think, of our theology. Well, I will say this. Dan was talking earlier about those who get that sanctified and petrified where they think there may be nothing left for, for God to do. You were talking of Genesis. Maybe they, they feel akin to Enoch. Um, they walk with the Lord and then they are no more. Um, they, they have reached that level. Uh, but in a serious note, uh, to your point about us talking about the here and now versus something in the future, one of the things that I have really been thinking a lot about lately here in my local pastoral work and even just where I see the church at a broad theological sweeping across the entire world, it seems to me that for a lot of people, 
The notion of a actual real bodily resurrection seems to be so foreign that it's almost become forgotten in a sense. And it seems that the emphasis, and even with I see with the generations in the church, there are people who, who are really into things like when we all get to heaven, and that's sort of a, a song they like. Um, and, you know, I understand the beauty of aspirational thinking that says, you know, there is something that we're aspiring towards. There is things we're moving towards. And then there also seems to be another generation that kind of rejects that entirely and says, oh, well, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to sing that song because we don't want to separate our work here and now from something that may happen in the future. And it seems to me that this juxtaposition is not really necessary in the church. But I just was curious, Dan, if you've seen any sort of movement as far as how we relate to, to such things such as a bodily resurrection or, or things of that nature. Well, and I guess for me, a generation that can ignore anything ultimate that is beyond this life is a generation that has ignored a great deal of Scripture. I mean, for Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. Um, pretty hard to preach a funeral and be an agent of hope if you think, and we thank God that they got all there was this time around and praise God they got it. Yeah. Um, for Paul, our ultimate hope, the reason I can bring hope when I stand looking down into a six foot deep hole with a casket beside it is that um, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And um, we will bury this body, but there will be another body brought forth from the grave. And in that there is a great deal of hope in Jesus Christ. And if we believe God raised Jesus from the dead, um, that gives a great deal of hope to us. If you take 1 Corinthians 15 seriously, which I do. And I like how you just ended that with, if I do, um, which I do. Um, to, the, to the other point, if you're someone who, who thinks that there is only heaven, that there could possibly be no other work that I need to do now that I'm sanctified, you're also missing a great deal of scripture. Um, Absolutely. Um, either way, this, this can get things taken wildly out of context. And to your point of this, there's a hope that can be found even at a funeral. There is no other power that can bring that sort of hope. This is one of the things which is so wonderful about the gospel. People, they make idols of all sorts of things. I know people hear me fuss about this all the time. People make politics idols. They make even elements of churchianity, to use another Dan language since he's here with us, uh, idols. None of these things are ever going to have the hope that can actually be found in, in Christ Jesus. Well, let's get on to our last point, and this is broke down a little bit into three segments, but we'll wrap up with this. Has our theology of entire sanctification been sacrificed in the name of other theological emphases? And there's really three ways we're going to talk about this, and we'll take them in turn. The first one is a mentality that wants to embrace all without moving towards aspirational standards. Earlier, Pastor Amanda mentioned something about meeting people where they are and elevating them. The, the pastor's role is to come to people and pastor them to to once one may find that they are sanctified. Well, they, they need to be blessing others. They need to be moving others towards. They need to be people who are, again, doing as the Holy Spirit has convicted and called us to do, actually working with others to, to be a light shining the gospel. Brother Dan, has something happened where our theology of entire sanctification has moved away from that with more of an embrace all? We don't need holiness. We don't need sanctification. Well, I don't know that 
you know, I think that would be a residual effect if you simply have an attitude that we will so embrace all that we will never make them uncomfortable enough to present the full gospel that basically suggests that in Jesus Christ, the ultimate goal is human transformation. That requires change. That pushes us out of comfort zones. And I think that is as true for the mature Christian as it is for the person who is just coming to Christ. Um, I think salvation as a whole is transformational. Um, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 pretty powerfully, the old has passed away, all things are made new in Jesus Christ. So change is coming if you truly do encounter the resurrected Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And that is good news. That is very good news. Um, so the second question point on this is, instead of saying it is a is gone away because instead of just saying embrace all, there's no need to change, has an emphasis really come into the church? And, it, and we can kind of include this a little bit beyond just specific Church of the Nazarene world, but just where Christianity is, um, because there are some other theological outlooks which follow this line of thinking. Anyways, is there an emphasis that says there's no way to achieve Christian perfection and we are indefinitely fallen and as such we are just sinners that could never be holy. You know, we wake up, you brush your teeth, you've sinned five or six times um, in doing that and that's just how it is. Um, Christian perfection is so out there that you, you know, you can't even do basic tasks. Um, you put on your shirt, well, that was 12 sins there. I mean, Brother Dan, talk talk with us about this. Has has that ever crept in with the Church of the Nazarene? Or I know others think that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, I think if you fail to make a clear distinction between Christian perfection and absolute perfection, that's a mistake. Um, our theological forebear, Wesley, didn't make that mistake. He made it crystal clear. Absolute perfection, that which can never be improved upon, belongs to God and God alone, not to humanity. But can we be perfect in the sense that we can become the human beings God created us with the potential to become, even given the fact, yes, humanity has fallen, yes, there are consequences of sin in the world in which we live, but the reality is God has created human beings with the potential to become more than simply bankrupt sinners who are going to fall short every day in thought, word, and deed because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. All righty, very good. And the last point that we have today before we start wrapping things up is, has our theology of entire sanctification been replaced with, or excuse me, has the theology of entire sanctification caused us to forget about things like backsliding, confession, um, even the need for, for sin to be atoned for and absolving of sin has entire sanctification caused all those things to be just thrown out in the ditch and say, well, we don't need to be talking about backsliding. We don't need to teach people to confess because, well, we should just assume they're all entirely sanctified and we don't have to worry about the, the carnal nature. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Dan? Well, I think, first of all, if, if entire sanctification is understood purely statically, and if the stasis is such that sin is no longer even a possibility, then I think we've misunderstood what Christian perfection or entire sanctification or Christian holiness is really all about. 
And I think we work in cooperation with God, not only in our justification, but in our sanctification and in our ongoing walk toward glorification. And I think for us to fall into that would be to make some terrible mistakes in terms of our understanding of what God is doing in shaping us and continuing to shape us as long as we live. All right, and that's what we'll go ahead and start wrapping things up. Um, I know Pastor Amanda earlier had mentioned, you know, we may be excommunicated. <laughs> my, my one fear whenever Dan comes on is that he's just going to tell us all to, to just quit. Um, <laughs> Dan, Dan is saying with nothing more than the virtue of just his his role as being a, a professor to us there in the past and just being a very influential one, just tell us that we're all fired. Um, we have done poorly. <laughs> But in all seriousness, um, I do thank Brother Dan very much for being here. Um, any final thoughts, Amanda or, or Brother Dan? Uh, I, I just uh, thought something um, on our last point about backsliding and confession. Um, we, we, we were talking a lot about Wesley, or we've mentioned his name a lot. And when we describe our theology, um, we often say we are Wesley and Arminian, and, and kind of that last word gets lost a little bit. But really, that theological persuasion as we follow um, Arminius, I think, uh, yes, is, is the idea of free will. And so we, we even in entire sanctification believe that free will still happens, that we still have that ability to choose. Mm. Um, but the, the, the will, the, uh, the inclination has been so caught up with the life and the nature of God that we don't want to choose anything other than the will of God. And we still can choose, and people do do that as well. And also the other thing is if you do sin— even in your entire sanctification, your entire sanctification is not just immediately lost, like it's a set of keys, um, or that somehow God kicks you out of uh, the kingdom just uh, because of that. But that, again, if you do sin, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive you. I mean, that's right out of scripture. So we, again, there's this hope and there's this beauty and, and there's all these big theological words and it gets weighty and, and sometimes frustrating trying to get through all this. But ultimately the confession is, um, God loves us and wants us uh, to participate in the kingdom and in its fullness. And part of walking in the spirit, which I mean the life of holiness, if I'm walking in the spirit and I'm in tune with the spirit, he makes it very clear when we have failed to walk in a Christ-like manner or if there is something within us that is less than pleasing to God, we don't have to stay there. Mm. He calls us, he leads us, he encourages us. He is for us. And that sounds like a good place to wrap this up. So Brother Dan, are we fired and excommunicated <laughs> today? I have no authority to fire anyone. <laughs> he didn't say no though, so that's always um, fun. Anyways, we're just, we're in, in good jest here. Um, and thank goodness, um, we do have a good camera shot on Dan today. Um, <laughs> He's he's leaning over on the table now, but but last time he was here, he was he was um the camera was it was not good. Anyways, I I know I'm bad at running this. Anthony is out today, but thank you so much for being with us today, brother Dan. You're welcome. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. If you haven't checked out our podcast and downloaded it and taken it with you, we're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Castbox, other places where the RSS feeds go out. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on a lot of different places. Remember to be supporting your local church. Be involved in your local church community. That fellowship is so vital to the healthy Christian life. And make sure that you're a part of that. If you'd like to support us monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelogos. And with that, God love you and have a blessed day.